episode number 25 with Scott Woods. I've known Scott for a very long time, good friend, and he's a great fiddle player, one of the best out there. He's been touring with his show across Canada and United States for several years now. And uh, we sat down and chatted about his life and how he got to where he is now. And I think it's a really great listen. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, we are rolling with Scott Woods. How you doing, buddy? Hey, great. Thanks for uh, taking a drive on this nice icy day. That's right. (laughs) Welcome to Canadian winters in Ontario. No snow, just lots of ice. Yes. Uh, Laneway was great. As long as you keep it between the ditches. I know. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's the main thing. So I thought maybe we'd go back um, and chat about how you got started um, back in the day. I know we both started early. did you start uh, as a in classical? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, like like you, my family, of course, was very involved in music, and my dad even um, grew up. His dad played fiddle, and uh, unusual in those days, back in the early '30s, um, there was actually a violin teacher just down the street from where my dad lived in Fergus. Oh yeah. And so his parents gave my dad legit violin lessons, classical violin lessons. And so dad formed a band when he was 12 and played his first old time dance. Yeah. And in 1956, dad's orchestra needed a new piano player. And a young gal who was only about 16 years old at that time named Carolyn uh, had been studying classical piano but her grandfather was quite a well-known fiddler, a champion, not a champion, but a, one in the top uh, eight prizes at the Shelburne Fiddle Contest in the early years, 51, yeah. 52 maybe. His name was Charlie Dyer. And his granddaughter, Carolyn, um, could play classical music, but also learned to chord to fiddle tunes. So she was hired as the new piano player for Merv Woods Orchestra. Oh, yeah. And so that's how my mom and dad met. Cool. And four or five years later, they got married, yeah. and uh, four of us kids came along. So we were all given classical lessons in violin and piano, and all the history, harmony, counterpoint, all the theory stuff as well, uh, because mom and dad both knew that the classical foundation really was important to build whatever type of music you wanted to play, whether it's jazz or old-time fiddle or classical or whatever. Yeah. And so Did we you were... start... Suzuki method at all? It wasn't you? Suzuki, no. Yeah. Um, I started actually with the same lady that lived down the street that taught my dad. Oh, okay. By the time I started, um, she was getting on an age. Yeah. <laughs> and I was only four. So I, she lived in Guelph at that time, and I would go for lessons. And she'd set her bow on top of the piano. And then she'd look around, and she couldn't find her bow. And oh, I would yeah. just giggle. I wouldn't say where it was. Yeah. And then she'd find her. She'd put her glasses <laughs> up on her forehead, and then she couldn't find her glasses. And so I was only with her for a short time. And then I moved over to Dorothy Pierce in Kitchener, Ontario. Yeah. And Dorothy was a very strict classical teacher. Doug McNaughton also studied with her. Yeah. Great teacher. Um, but she was very classical, very strict about technique. 
and really made us proud. I came out of there crying more times than not, I think, when I was just five or six years old. But she was really, really good at setting up that foundation of how to play. And we did the Kiwanis Music Festivals and the Royal Conservatory exams, all of us, my brother and my two sisters, we all went through that whole process. And in the meantime, as a reward for practicing the technique, if you practice your scale 10 times and perfectly, uh, I'll teach you a jigger real dad would say. Oh yeah. So we'd learn the fun stuff from dad. And of course, mom and dad still had the orchestra. They were playing every weekend, uh, an old time dance somewhere. And we did concerts and a lot of dances back in those days. This yeah. is in the early seventies and late seventies. And so I joined the band when I'm, I'm the youngest, so I was about eight years old, I think. And I played fiddle, but then I started playing drums. And over the years, uh, my brother and my sister played saxophone. I did too for a while, played bass, guitar, whatever was needed. Yeah. You know what that's like. Yeah. We're going to learn them all. Yeah. Uh, if the guitar player is not available, you better be able to sit in and, and do something or bass or drums or whatever. And so it was a, a great upbringing. We learned a lot from my dad about tempo and dance feel. You can't play a shatish that fast. It's not, you can't dance to it. Yeah. Or if you play it too slow, or if you play your waltzes, it's got to have the right flow in order, yeah. yeah, to get people up on the floor. And, and you learned if you started something and it was not the right tempo, the floor didn't fill up. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, we played a lot of dances when we were young too. And, and uh, it, was, it's, it was, or it still is to some degree, a different beast than just plan yeah i had to think about um it's funny when you mentioned a shatish i haven't played one of those in years <laughs> we used to do that yeah um probably hardly anyone would know what that is nowadays um and yeah it's you'd have to really think about the flow of what you're going to do next and, yeah and there were always those songs every once in a while you'd i always i'd always think that after lunch they used to have you know mm -hmm. around 11 o'clock whatever that ended up being um, I don't know why they ended up calling lunch because it was always 11 o'clock at night. Exactly. It should have been a midnight snack or something. <laughs> We're going to have lunch now. I'm thinking, what? Um, but it was, I always found it was hard to get people on the dance floor mm -hmm. right after they had their meal. So we always had, you know, one, two, three, or four numbers. Yes. And I know for us, um, gosh, what was it? It was... It was Hardix by a number, I think. Yep. Um, old country classic. Or, we um, did Crystal Chandelier. Yes, that was, that was always a good yeah, one. Crystal Chandelier was yeah. the other one. That same with us. That would. Yeah. That song was just always. There guaranteed. was always a few that you knew if if you played that one and nobody got up on the floor, then they're not going to get up ever. You might as well just pack up and go home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think of it now as being six years old, um, playing Crystal Chandeliers and getting people up on the floor, and then. 30 years later you're maybe it's 40 years <laughs> who knows <laughs> but you end up working with charlie pride uh, yeah. you know and it's it's weird how you think when you're young and then then many years later you you know you get a chance to meet or see the people you the music that you played so yeah um so that's yeah very much like our family like myself started playing at four i didn't take classical too long but i started with that um so do you think i always ask this question um to fiddle players um because some people are really stickler about technique and other people aren't now that you're kind of older how how do you think about 
technique now <laughs> does it in your in your mind does it mean as much or yeah 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 i'm one of those sticklers are you yeah okay. and i i think even i i don't teach as much now as i used to um 15 years ago i had a lot of students like even back i was still competing up until the 2003 or four or five somewhere in there yeah and in those days i had a lot of students like i i worked with uh Mark Sullivan yeah. and Lindsay and Tyler Beckett, Kyle Sharon, all the Fitzgeralds uh, from Bancroft, um, just a whole bunch of great films. I had students from Sudbury and lots down around Oshawa, Peterborough, that way, yeah. London and Chatham, uh, Sarnia way. I had a few from New York State and Pennsylvania that come up every other week for a lesson. And wow. So my approach was always based on technique. And I would always say, you know, if you're doing something that's not perhaps right, and it was always about posture and relaxation and uh, bow grip, uh, the geometry of the elbow yeah. on, the, on the bow arm and keeping the elbow high, but the shoulder relaxed to get that sort of smooth flow in the bow yeah. uh, to the point that you can now you can play yes smooth and and light and uh, you know very gentle but at the same time you can play fast and aggressive because you're not tightening the whole arm up moving yeah and i would say to them you know if there is an issue that i see it it might not stop you from playing because there's lots of fiddle players that don't have great technique and they're much more successful than i am but the they will be limited at some point. They might want to play a different style or a tune or a piece or a section of a tune that they just can't play in that speed. Yeah. Or they just can't play as smoothly as somebody else that they want to. And that hurdle, they just won't be able to get over because of their technique. So I would always try and get back to that basics and and really you know, pound that in that the, the technique. So we worked a lot and it, my approach was kind of like my dad's, like we work on the technique yeah, and most of my students um, were fiddle students, so they they were competing, and so they were working on their waltz jig and reel for the contest, and and a lot of them were recording and playing other shows, country music or Celtic or whatever. Uh, so we would work on those tunes as well, but we would always bring it back to what you need to get this section of the tune perfected is let's work on Kreitzer number th three, yeah, <laughs> or Kreitzer number. 14 or whatever, whatever exercise or shradiac or uh, whatever the study that would affect that particular piece of music. Yeah, that's makes perfect sense, especially when you put it that way. That's probably explained the best way yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I always say, I, I think it's a really great foundation. Um, and I always kind of came uh, from the school. It's like, I think to some degree, you get that foundation and it makes sense. And then I think everybody has their own slight different way of getting there. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the technique is really, really important. Uh, and I, as you mentioned, it will limit you in some purposes, but I think everyone, I think everyone's, uh, shaped differently. Everyone, absolutely. You know, there's a little, everyone's a little quirkier and, uh, everyone's not built exactly the same. Well, the example I often use is that Graham Townsend, who mm -hmm. was more or less self-taught. He was legally blind. He couldn't read music. He didn't, couldn't see it, couldn't understand it to, to read music, really. Yeah. Uh, most of the stuff that was written, um, Elner would transcribe for him. Yeah. 
or somebody else. Um, and Graham was a brilliant player, obviously. But did he not have technique? Well, no, he had great technique. But how did he learn it? Well, he listened to recordings. He worked with Don Messer and he worked with all these different uh, great fiddlers uh, of the past. And he listened to the, the way they played and then he tried to... It, and I guess it might not have been a straight line. It might have been a roundabout way to get to the end result, but he still got there. Yeah. And yeah. I think the technique just kind of uh, streamlines the that route so that you get a little faster to the left-hand agility or the right-hand mobility or whatever it is that you're working on technical-wise. Yeah, makes sense. So going back, you were playing dances and, and doing that with the family and and uh, how long did you do do that for? Did that kind of carry you through your high school years? Yeah, yeah. I uh, basically put myself through university and a business degree um, in weekend gigs uh, with the family band. And then I played a lot of gigs with other groups. I played with a, a group out of St. Catharines called the Bay Boys, Newfoundland Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, for on and off for over 20 years oh, wow. and uh, learned a gr- lot of great music with those guys. They were a lot of fun. Uh, sadly, both of the, the brothers, Les and Freddie Northcott, have passed away, but uh, I really enjoyed the time working with them. And I did a lot of the other big country shows. There was one called the All-Star Country Tribute Show, and um, I forget who else now. I, there's a bunch of people that I had worked with through high school and, and early university days. Um, and it was it was really a, a great experience because I played modern country and old country and bluegrass and some blues and rock. And most of it was fiddle by that point, but I was still playing a fair bit of drums. Yeah. And uh, I was recording, um, you know, and, and competing, of course, during the summertime. That was, that was my main summer job <laughs> yeah that take most what was your first do you remember your first contest yes 1979 shelburne or bob cajun rather okay at the i did go to shelburne that year but bob cajun was a couple of weeks before the end of july and uh i had been to the contests uh, for a year or so but uh, back in those days um it, it was kind of a well you don't compete unless you can play pretty good already yeah and so I had been playing for three or four years, but I could play waltz, chicken, reel, but uh, my parents didn't think I was quite ready. So uh, nowadays, if you can get up there and just hold the fiddle up and move the bow across the string, they say, yeah, you go in the eight and under class, you get something, right? Yeah. Um, but in those days, they didn't do it. And so Bob Cajun was the first time that I actually competed. I was eight. And I, I remember my aunt, uh, she told me, well, if you play well, uh, maybe you'll get a trophy or something. But, uh, you know, you should, you should go up there and try your best. And if you play well, I'll give you 20 bucks. 1979, 20 bucks was a lot of, a lot of Kortha dairy ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. So sure enough, I I played. In fact, I remember, uh, so I have two sisters. My oldest sister, Elizabeth is a doctor. And then Kendra, the next one is uh, now touring with me. She's a retired school teacher, but uh, teaching music for 31 years. Yeah. And so they were, they're like two different people. So Liz is scholarly type, went to medical school, always reading, very, very smart. Uh, Kendra was more, wanted to deal with the little kids. And so uh, Kendra is like, don't worry, you're going to go up and compete your first contest. You'll be fine. Don't worry. It's going to be great. It's a fun experience. 
And my oldest sister, Liz, says, you better not mess it up because we have a reputation, you know. <laughs> and I'm eight years old looking at her going, uh, okay. Anyways, I remember playing and I came down and I happened to be the youngest fiddler. And so I got a trophy. And so I went down to my aunt and I said, well, I played and I got a trophy. Where's my 20 bucks? <laughs> so sure enough, she coughed up the 20 bucks and I ate $20 worth of Kawartha dairy ice cream that whole weekend above Cajun. That's awesome. <laughs> my grandpa used to always... He used to bribe me with twenties every once in a while. I can't, you know, I can't even remember now what it before. I'm sure my sister would tell me because she always get mad because I always got the money. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one. Oh, I remember one of them was uh, when I was young. I never, like, I never smile on stage. Oh yes. And uh, gr my grandpa and uh, would would always say, "Well, if you if you smile on the show, I'll give you twenty dollars." Yeah. And I would like smile for like a second. <laughs> <laughs> you got the Donnie Reed smile. Yeah, real quick. <laughs> and then I get my 20 bucks. <laughs> That's the fiddle contest thing though. That not smiling thing. Is it? Yeah, yeah. because you're so focused. And you know, you and I both grew up, you know, competing in those contests. Yeah. And the judge is sitting down there and they're listening and they're looking up for any little scratch or any little imperfection. And, and you're up there just focused in your own little bubble about not worrying about what else is going on in those old arenas and flies buzzing around and all the distractions and you're just like playing your waltz jig and reel. And uh, so when you start playing shows, it's it's a whole different beast at all to, to smile and entertain. And I find it very difficult to be animated when I'm playing. Oh yeah. Singing or talking, no problem. But when I'm playing, I'm still a bit of a stone face. Just go back to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just natural. Um, so you obviously did contests for a long time. You mentioned to the to the mid to two thousand three, four, some somewhere somewhere in there, yeah. And uh, I know you were really uh, successful. That you won a lot of a lot of awards. And um, what were some of your highlights uh, during well, that? I was really lucky. I. Uh, when I was 11 or 12, I started to win a lot of the 12 and under classes. And uh, I, I loved going to the contests. Uh, one year, I'm not sure how old I was, around that age though, I think there was 35 contests I got to in one year. Wow. Now, a lot of those are little fair contests, one-off yeah. things. And sometimes there's two or three on a weekend, so you can go on a Thursday night to one and a Friday to another one, a Saturday to another one, Sunday, you might pick up another one. And uh, they were little, but they were great um, experience builders. And I've always said that about the, the fiddle contest. Uh, first of all, it, it forces you to stand in front of the audience and you get that nervousness, like, you know, people always dreading public speaking or being in front of an audience. Well, when you stand up there and play the fiddle, it's the same thing. Yeah, You're under the microscope. You're not speaking, but you're playing. It's just, it's basically the same experience. Your heart rate goes up and you soon learn to deal with that and use that as your friend. And that adrenaline, that little butterflies that you get in your stomach uh, can give you a little edge yeah. and really focus all your attention on exactly what you do. You live in the moment right then and there where lots of other times, if you're just playing a show or whatever, um, you, you can wander, your mind gets off, you're wondering, what's that guy doing over there? What's what's happening with this? Or why is the guitar player playing that chord? But the fiddle contest really focus you in on that. And the other thing is that you learn very quickly at a young age that you don't always win. Yeah. there's I, I don't know how many times I competed and I won and I knew in my heart I didn't deserve it. Yeah. I knew somebody else played better. 
Yeah. And I didn't play my best and I was I was almost embarrassed that I was getting the trophy. And I, I remember um, I, I always took it very humbly and I would say thank you and I congratulate all of my other competitors. And the same thing happens. There's lots of times you deserve to win and you know in your heart you did yeah. and you don't get it. Somebody yeah. else does. And you take that just as humbly and you say congratulations and you do it with a smile and you shake their hands and you move on. And that's a good life lesson because you know there's a lot of competition in life uh you know growing up to to get into the schools that you want and to get the affection of a, another person to be the, the love in your life or whatever to get yeah. that job promotion everybody's got competition even just to get into merge in the lane of traffic on the 401 is a bit of a competition some yeah. days so you always learn that it, you don't always win and uh, so I was really, really lucky. And I won a lot of those contests in the 11 and 12 years old in the 12 and under class. Uh, I won Shelburne, the, the big one, I guess, in 1983. I was 12. Yeah. And then I moved into the 18 and under class. I worked my way through there. And I think in 87, I had won the 18 and under class. I was 16. I also had won that year, the third year in a row for the novelty. Oh, yeah. Where I so. do the tricks. And then uh, got into the open class right after that when I was 17. And I had won Pembroke uh, three or maybe four times. I think when I was about 17, I started winning in Pembroke. Uh, and I still couldn't win Shelburne in the open class until 93. I was 22. Yeah. And uh, won the first time there. And then again in 96. And then the Canadian Grandmasters... Um, uh, I think that was 98 and 99. So I was very, very fortunate to most of the major competitions across the country, uh, several in the States as well. Um, I was very, very fortunate. Who was, um, who would, I wouldn't say competition, but who were the the ones you were playing against mostly at like in the open? Like I know I was, I did a contest. I think my last one was when I was 12. Um, I've told the story once before, but it, roughly, um, I think it's a Royal Winter Fair or something like that. It was a little fiddle contest. And it was 12 and under, and I think I was, I was just around 12. Um, and there's four of us, um, and three got into the finals. Um, long story short, I didn't. Uh, and there was a girl who got in, uh, and she stopped and she cried and she made another mistake and stopped and had to restart and cried again and you know th that whole mm -hmm. thing and uh and she got in and i didn't so and i played fine i was no mm -hmm. no issues um so on the way home i remember i remember the drive home and i remember <laughs> sitting in the back of the car i remember my mom and dad in the front and for me for some reason um i decided yeah i had enough of that <laughs> and that one single um contest um made my decision not to do it uh anymore um which was fine for me because i i had a bunch of other interests that um it was actually i think for me it was probably a good thing because mm -hmm. it led me a bunch of different areas but um at that time i was uh i was with uh the schreier triplets yes and uh uh Leahy. Mm -hmm. Saw that there was like five of us. I think there's someone else in there, um, and that was like, I don't say that was. It was 
stiff comp. It, oh, yeah. It made me work really hard. <laughs> I remember, you know, it's like, oh, if I could just even, you know, get second, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'd win a couple times and then they'd win a lot. And then um, it was like a rotation of yes. all of us. Um, but yeah, they were all monsters at a young age. Um, and um, quite amazing now. I mean, they have, um, I haven't seen the Shriers in a long, long, long time, but Danelle, I've run into a few times. Mm -hmm. And uh, great players, all of them. And yeah, all different. And you're right; yeah. they they would push each other because, uh, in fact, um, the Shriers' parents come to our show when we play in Sault Ste. Marie. Still, oh great. And I usually recognize if I see them in the audience, I recognize them and acknowledge that they're in the audience. And I would say, you know, uh, the triplets, um, they're a little bit older than me, so they were they were always better because <laughs> yeah. I was just a year, couple of years younger than them. And, uh, but I said, we kind of had this love hate relationship, uh, because when we were on the stage, we were fierce competitors. We'd do anything to be the winner that day. Yeah. But then we come off and five minutes after they announced the winners, we didn't care. It yeah. didn't matter. It was just a fiddle contest anyways. Yeah. Right. It didn't matter. And we'd be off in the park jamming, playing tunes, learning tunes from each other, hanging out, just kids playing, having fun. And I think that was the social part that that you saw the same people every week. And then you go home and practice like crazy to do better the next weekend. But you're right. I, I mean, I was competing with all those guys, the Schreier triplets, Louis and uh, Dan and Pierre. And Robbie Dagenet came onto the scene. Uh, I would have been about 15 or so. I think he was in the 18 and under class when I first ran into Robbie. And Todd Thompson uh, from Petrolia. And then Ian Hamilton joined the the scene as well from London. Um, there was Suzanne Tellier from uh, Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um, David Jones from London used to show up sometimes. He was a little bit younger than me. Uh, who else was in the contest? Uh, there was just a whole bunch. So when I got into the open class, that's pretty much who I was. And even Raymond Schreier was still competing the odd time and Michelle yeah. Lubinecki and Karen Reed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, years ago, there was Kevin Rager and Dwight Lubinecki as well. Yeah, I remember. Um, some of these names from the past that, uh, they, they're kind of the ones, Donnie Reed, of course. Um, I remember watching Donnie win three years in a row at Shelburne, 1980, 81, and 82. Yeah. Uh, and Chuck Joyce was still competing. Oh, yeah. I remember Chuck. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, there's lots of them. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, um, it was. And every weekend was different because you go to the Ottawa Valley and you might have a few more from that area that you don't normally see in southwestern Ontario, but down here there was lots of different fiddlers as well. So yeah, um, what it was like when you were in when you're in high school, um, you probably end up playing every weekend, were you? Lots of times. Yeah, my yeah. high school life was. I didn't end up doing many of the parties or or socializing outside of high school. Um, a lot because, well, one, we lived in the middle of the country, but um, we played every weekend. Yeah. So we're... Same thing. We're gone. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We were gone, uh, well, in the summertime, we were gone usually Thursday night or Friday morning to a fiddle contest somewhere, or if we weren't at a contest, we were playing a show. Yeah. And we'd get home Sunday late afternoon sometime. Uh, we had the trailer and we'd load the van up with the gear and away we go and stay somewhere in the trailer at the fiddle contest. And then my, my buddies were playing ball or lacrosse or we didn't have a football team in my high school, but, uh, you know, fiddle playing is not the coolest of, 
things to do when you're a young guy, <laughs> yeah. as you know. Um, but uh, I just say, well, it's fine. You know, I'm I'm making money every weekend, and you guys are just out playing and having fun. And yeah. at the end of the day, I'm going to have something that, to show for this, and you guys are just going to be playing ball and and having fun. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I remember uh, when I was in high school, um, I didn't know what people thought. <laughs> I didn't really care. Um, I was very much a part of the music department in high school, and I actually really hardly ever played the violin in high school. I played sax. I played sax too. So I spent, I think, most of my time playing sax. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we had a our family had a TV show on uh, at the time. So I didn't realize until much later um, what you know anyone what anyone thought. And then I think near the end of high school, every once in a while, I get someone who'd come up and say, "Hey, yeah, we watch you every every week on TV." <laughs> and it's like, "You do?" <laughs> it was like I was shocked because I didn't think that anyone cared or knew or or even thought it would maybe slightly cool, right? Yeah. Um, but I think when you're in high school, you just um, I kind of always put it aside and I, I didn't really ever talk about it. Um, I just, I was gone and I think everyone just knew and that was it. No, yeah. one, no one really said anything to me. <laughs> I never really said anything to them and we just kept going. <laughs> that seemed to be the way it went. Yeah. So eventually you, you, you finished up your uh, uh, university. Mm-hmm. So what, you, what was it that you said? You I took, took marketing actually. Marketing? I went to Brock University and took marketing and it was interesting because when I was signing up for university, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. Yeah. And at that time I didn't want to play music for a living. My goal was to not have to take it out of the box to eat. Yeah. And you know, in, in those days I was still playing with a bunch of bands and I, I had played some bars. I didn't like them. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if this is what the music business is, is going out on a, you know, Friday and Saturday night and play until two o'clock in the morning to a bunch of drunks and, uh, you know, then packing up and getting home at four or five in the morning with smoke in your eyes and you can't see and can't go to sleep, then I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I, I did apply to music at Laurier and I did apply to Western for science because I liked chemistry and I liked physics and uh, math and that kind of stuff, which is actually not that uncommon with musical people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they're very related. But uh, I, I didn't really want to be a science teacher and I didn't want to work in a lab. So I kind of, my oldest sister Liz went that route. She went chemistry to, at Western first and then got into medical school and became a, a doctor. Um, Kendra went the other way and she did the the music, but then went to teacher's college and was a teacher. Yeah. My brother took business. So I thought, well, I should maybe do that. And my parents had a real estate business. It, it, again, a, a generation thing. Uh, my grandfather started the real estate business in Fergus in 1919. And then dad got in in 54. And my mom had her uh, CRA appraisal designation. So they were busy all through, even when the, the early 80s, when the market was very depressed, um, they weren't selling a lot of houses, but my mom was busy with appraisals for the banks because there was a lot of foreclosures and refinancing and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And that kept us going. And so I thought, well, uh, that might be a good gig because, you know, my dad did that and then he played on the weekends. Uh, so there's still an opportunity to keep music. I wanted to keep music in my life. I just didn't want to have to play. Yeah. So I went to Brock for marketing and 
I realized at university that a lot of the business education was geared towards corporate, big business, yeah. you know, starting in the mailroom and working your way up through middle management. And by the time you're 55, you're upper middle management and you're ready to retire and you get this package. And I'm like, well, that's not really, I don't want to work in the city and live in a, you know, high rise kind of building, working all day and driving in that commuter traffic. I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be yeah. independent. And so I immediately got my real estate license, my broker's license. And my brother had got his and was working with dad in the real estate. And so I did as well. And I was actually really, really successful at that. I enjoyed it. Um, and I felt I was too young as I, I thought I was young. I was like, you're 20 years old or whatever, 21. And, yeah. and you're, you're trying to sell a house in those days that was a hundred or $150,000. And like, who, who's going to trust a 20 year old with yeah. this kind of an investment? Yeah. And my dad told me, he says, well, don't worry so much about how old you are. He said, just know your stuff, research it, know what you're talking about. Don't give them any nonsense. Don't give them the hard sale stuff. Just try and help the people either sell their house, if that's what they're trying to do, or buy a new house, if that's what they're trying to do. Give them the options, show them. And he said, the rest will just fall into place. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. If you don't worry about your commission and only worry about helping the people. So I did that for, uh, for quite a while. And I was still teaching on, you know, in the evenings and on the weekends, still playing a lot, recording. And uh, I was, really enjoyed that. Yeah. If I had stuck with real estate, I still have my broker's license, but I mean, if I had stuck just doing that primarily, I'd be probably in a lot better position financially than I am right now playing the fiddle. But uh, I guess about 98 is where things really started to change for me. Um, I had done a show with Tommy Ledbeater yeah. at the Wingham Theater, and that was with Gary and Janice Bala. And Tommy is just crazy. He is an absolute entertainer. He is nuts. He's, he's just fun on the stage, great singer, great pipes. Like he's just, um, and, and just a real energetic soul. Yeah. And so we kind of hit it off. And his manager at the time was Barbara Martin. Mm -hmm. And Barbara was sitting at the back of the hall that day when a show was on, it was a, a variety show and Tommy and I were both guests and she was talking to my dad. They were sitting there selling the CDs and she said, well, I do this show called Memories of Don Messer's Jubilee and we tour across the country. Graham Townsend was involved from the beginning of that show and it started in 1995 uh, honoring the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II and Don Messer's um, radio show was broadcast to the troops overseas during World War II. It was the only broadcast of its kind, um, I guess on shortwave radio. Yeah. It was the only broadcast that was not of a, you know, pure news-oriented yeah. program. It was a little piece of home. It was a 15-minute broadcast that they sent so the boys over there could get a little taste of home Yeah, because he was on CBC coast-to-coast -coast on the radio in those days uh, twice a week. So it sounded like home when they heard Don Messer and, and the Islanders. So she thought it was an appropriate show to pay tribute. So she had Don Tremaine come back, the original host. Vic Mullen, who was, of course, the five-string banjo player, and he played fiddle and guitar. Uh, he had been on the TV show from about the late 
66 or 7 or so until the end. Um, and who else? They had uh, a group of eight dancers, some of them original book to dancers or kids of the book to dancers. Yeah. It was a really big production. Johnny Forrest was another one she had. And uh, so she put this show together and it toured and it was very successful. And a couple of weeks after the show that we did in Wingham, Barbara called my dad and said, we need a piano player for the Don Messer tribute show. We're going out on the road in the fall. And there's only about 12 dates in Ontario just. And the piano player that they had couldn't go or whatever. Graham Townsend suggested that my mom would be the best piano player because she can play fiddle tunes, but she can also do the songs. And it's yep. a whole different, you know what, it's a whole different style to play for songs than it is just according to tunes. So that's great. My mom got the gig first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then a week or so later, Barb called and said to my dad, um, I have an unusual request. I need an understudy for Graham. Graham was sick with cancer at that time. It's mm -hmm. the fall of 98. And she said, he thinks he can do the tour, but I'm worried because, I mean, she was playing the Sanderson Center and the show place and... Um, like the bigger theaters. I think we played Centennial Hall in London and she had big crowds yeah. and people were coming expecting a show. And she said, I can't show up and then Graham's not feeling well and can't play or collapses in the middle of the show because he's weak. Yeah. So I need a, an understudy that can go learn the show, take the rehearsals so that Graham doesn't have to and rehearse the band and basically be a, a band leader, but be off stage. <laughs> Yeah. And so, and, and also you have to be a stage manager. Yeah. And I remember in the background going, no, no, no. <laughs> and dad's like, yeah, no, I think Scott would be very interested in that. I'll talk to him. <laughs> and he gets off the phone and I'm like, no, I don't want to be a stage manager. I don't want to be off the stage. I have no interest in that. Anyways, dad talked me into it. He said, listen, Graham suggested that you are the guy, if all of the fiddles, all of the fiddlers that he knew in the country if he picked you to be the guy that could play the style of Don Messer, then that's a real honor. And yeah. don't disrespect him by saying no. You just go and do this thing. So uh, anyways, I negotiated, negotiated with Barb and I said, okay, I'll, I'll uh, do the stage manager thing and I'll write the charts and I'll rehearse the band and I'll be a band leader. But I said, I would like to play. Mm -hmm. So she said, well, there is a couple of spots in the show that we normally have a twin fiddle thing, where, like where Don and Cease McEachern would play together. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll do that. I'll play harmony to Graham. Okay, I'll have to check with Graham. So she checked with Graham, and, she, and Graham, sure enough, said, oh, yes, that'd be great. I've, I know Scott. He'd be just wonderful to play harmony to. So that's great. So that's how I got on that gig, and we did our run. Graham played every show but one. And he, we had a double show is in Brampton uh, at the old theater downtown. I forget what it's called. And uh, it's the Rose now, or yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. So we had an afternoon show and an evening show, and Graham was pretty tired. It was near. I think it was the last day of the show actually. Mm -hmm. And so he asked if I would play the afternoon show, and he would sit out front and critique the show, and offer me and Barb uh, feedback on what to do to keep the show going in the future. It was a very, very popular show. Yeah. And then he played the evening show. And uh, 10 days later, I was playing at Graham's funeral in oh, Barrie. Geez. Like that's how close it was to the end. That was his last big, it was his last tour and his last big 
performance. He did do a couple of small jam session gigs after that, but he was pretty weak. Like yeah. he was thin, his face was drawn, like he just wasn't himself. Mind you, that night, the second show that day in Brampton, the last night of the tour, um, he played as good as I've ever heard him play. Wow. You know, and I had done, well, I had recorded on the last album that he um, played. I played drums on it and I also played twin fiddle with him on that. That would have been uh, earlier that year in the summertime probably yeah. or early fall. And uh, he was still playing great. And that night he played a super. Um, he played also at the Grand Masters as a guest that year in the fall and uh, had played drums for him on that show. But uh, it was such a, a shame. He was 56, I'm going to say, something like that. Yeah. But, oh, he was uh, fantastic. I recorded his 101 Fiddlehead yes. CD. Yes, that's a great album. Yeah, it's. Um, I got. I'm not even sure if I have a copy around. I got to take a look. But um, yeah, it was it was crazy. He just like 101 fiddle tunes. Yeah, I, I don't know 101 fiddle tunes. Yeah, he was an encyclopedia. He mm -hmm. he knew not only the tune and how to play it and you know the key and everything, but he knew who recorded it, when they recorded it, uh, what label they recorded on, where the tune came from originally. Uh, who did a variation of it and played it in a different key or did some crazy thing to that tune. Like he knew all about that tune. Yeah. You know, and I guess that's what it is if, if that's your life. Like he was basically a, a genius when it came to fiddle tunes. Yeah. Well, you could, I mean, you just kind of lived in and breathed fiddle tunes and yeah. playing the fiddle. I mean, it was just so much a part of him. Um, yeah, I really miss him. Um, uh, and nice guy and fun guy to oh, yeah. hang out he's, with too. He's crazy. Yeah, he's he 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 liked the spotlight. He yeah. liked those. He had those big neon uh, jumpsuits with the sequins and everything. Yeah. And him and Elner would come out and play. And um, it, it was good though. I mean, he he was on the road with Wilf Carter and Stomp and Tom and all these big guys. He had done a lot. And I was pretty young. I was playing drums for him once in uh, Belmore for a dance. And uh, I think Phyllis and Russell McDowell were playing uh, guitar and piano and might have been Charlie Steinhoff on upright bass. I can't remember. He's put a little band together and he's playing this dance. And he said, bring your fiddle. So I'm 12 years old. It's great. So I'm playing drums. And he says, now we're going to have Scott play the fiddle with us. So the three of us played one or maybe two tunes together in yeah. three-part harmony. And of course, the crowd loved that. And they said, do another one, do another one. Graham's like, no, Scott's got to go back on the drums now. <laughs> like that's the way, he, he was just a lot of fun. And yeah. I have so many great laughs when I think about Graham. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. So you did that tour. Um, yes, and uh, that was 98. And yeah. then in 99, after Graham passed away, uh, Barbara called me and said, uh, I'd like to do the show again. And I would like you to be the band leader, musical director, yeah, and help me with the show. And uh, thus became a very long and brilliant partnership. Um, Barb and I worked, you know, tirelessly to improve the show. I had a lot of ideas. In those days, we were using the house sound rig and the house sound guy a lot of the time, and it was a very frustrating. Uh, sound check setup. We would forward the the plot of the stage and our requirements, 
and you know what it's like most of the time nothing is there and ready when you get there so you have to find it they don't have it they don't have enough mixes they don't have enough monitors so it's always a compromise and the sound men don't really understand what a fiddle is supposed to sound like so it was always um uh, an issue and what should have been like a 20 minute sound check was like a three or four hour sound check and you're beat before you even start the show. Yeah. So we, we corrected a lot of the things technical wise. Yeah, we carried a sound man. We still used a house rig, but we carried a sound man and we carried some monitors and some equipment of our own, our own keyboard uh, and a few other things just for consistency. Yeah. And then uh, it, we got to the point that I convinced Barb just to carry a whole rig, everything, sound and lights and um so we we worked together to improve the show, and we had visuals. We had uh, well, we did a a, a spin off show called Memories of Western Swinging and Country Singing. We had actual cactuses in the back of the stage, and I mean this is still back in the early two thousand. So yeah. you know the we had we had a gobo that had our logo on, which was huge at those yeah days. It's not like we could put a projector up and display all these images and backdrops and everything. Um, but we really worked hard to give a good show. And we had a 16-piece cast still in those days traveling. Uh, we'd go out three or four times a year for two, three, four weeks at a time all across the country, all the major soft seat theaters. Yeah. And uh, so that, that really, I guess that was, 98 is when that shift started between real estate and music, and, and it just kind of went the other way. And by the time uh, I left Barb's show in 2005, late 2005, and I didn't know it at the time, but she was sick. Uh-huh. She had a some kind of a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. I think it was non-cancerous. But uh, anyways, she, she passed away in early two, 2007. So she did do a show. Um, Mark Sullivan came and played for her in 2006. Yeah. And she did, I think, Sanderson Center. Johnny Forrest maybe came, and she did one or two shows there. But it was a very short run, like three or four shows. Yeah. And that was pretty much the end. When I left, it was pretty much the end. We had, we had a very good parting. Yeah. Um, she basically wanted me to go out on my own and said that I, I better do that. And so she, she kind of pushed me out of the nest. It's a long story, but... Uh, Barbara and I were great friends after that, and uh, I talked to her just not very long before she passed away. But uh, it was it was a really good time for. Uh, uh, I think that's me. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's on vibrate, but it's just buzzing in the chair. Anyways, it was it was a lot of fun working with Barb over the years, and I learned a lot. I would not be able to do what I'm doing today had it not been for that experience. Yeah. And uh, then that's in 2005, 2006, early 2006, is when I basically had to make it or break it on my own. Yeah. So was that a scary proposition for you? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I had moved from, uh, I had a a really nice bungalow in Alora, and I had sold it and bought the house I'm in now, which was my grandfather had built, where my dad grew up. Yeah. And we had kept it after my grandmother died, and had tenants in it. So it was okay, but it was a little run down. It needed some, it was a really nice house. Uh, all hardwood floors and, you know, original wood trim. Yeah. And so because it had always been in the family, it was still original, but it needed to be done properly. Yeah. So I started and I was just going to originally 
fix it up and then sell it and move on, get something else. But I realized that I, I kind of liked the house and it was Nana's house when I was a kid. So we had a lot of memories. Yeah. So wiring, plumbing, windows, insulation, upper siding, aluminum trim, uh, repointed the brick, uh, did all the outside stone foundation and then, yeah. then sidewalk in the front and the patio at the back and the doors and then sewer line. And, you know, one thing after, you know what it's yeah. like, right? Um, so I had still... Thirty or forty thousand dollars of renovations committed on this house, and it's the end of two thousand and five. And I I left Barb Show, and I'm like, wait a second, I have no work, I have nothing. Yeah, I'm going to pay for this. Um, so the, January first, I looked at my schedule, and I think I had three shows booked in Florida, and I had two or three sound gigs for the fiddle contest that I was still picking up after my dad had passed away. I carried on those for a few years and that was it. Yeah. So I thought, well, I guess I better get busy. Yeah. And uh, my dad died in 03 at Christmas time. And in, I guess, 04 in the spring, um, well, when, when my dad first passed away, we were doing Barb Show. Uh, and I think we were supposed to be in Lindsay and that was the day of the funeral, so I missed the one show. And then the next day after the funeral was uh, Tyler Beckett filled in for that show. And then the next day we did two, two shows at the Roxy and Owen Sound. Mm -hmm. So we went back on the tour, Mom and I both. And it, rather than traveling with the band, we drove on our own, went back and forth. Because Mom had to deal with stuff, yeah. of course, after the, the funeral. And so we had lots of great conversations, my mom and I. And she said, you know, I'd like to, to do a mission trip. And I said, okay. And she said, now that your dad's gone, she said, maybe I will. I might just do that. I said, okay. I said, you know, I'm not in a position right in this point in my life that I would want to do that. But I said, you know, I think that's great. And I said, I'd probably just play my fiddle somewhere and make some money for, you know, men for missions or whoever, whatever group is going to build a school or a church or whatever. Yeah. Oh, she goes, that's a good idea. She said, I wonder, maybe we should just take the whole band and do a show at the church and then the proceeds will go to men for missions. They're going to Haiti or Nicaragua or someplace. Um, she said, we should do that. So in the, in the spring of 04, we put a, a short tour of about 12 shows uh, with a small five-piece band, um, basically the band that I'd been using to play dances still. Yeah. And uh, we, we went out and did a, a kind of a split-the-door deal with a bunch of churches and a few service clubs and other charities all across uh, southwestern Ontario and northern Ontario, up around Blind River and Sault Ste. Marie in the Ottawa Valley as well. And it seemed to be really successful. And then, so we're still working with Barb. Yeah. This is 04. And then in the fall, we did another dozen or so shows and they seemed on the same basis, they seemed to be really quite successful. Uh, we did a few more in 05 and then 06 comes along and I have no shows with Barb now and I've got to do something. So that, that's kind of how we got into this. It wasn't really by design. It was more by accident, but the word kind of got out that we were doing these fundraising shows and we did a lot of gospel music. So the churches really liked it. Yeah. And the split the door was a great idea because they didn't have to commit a certain amount of money that if for some reason it was not successful, that they were going to be out money. They were always going to be gaining money of some kind more yeah. if they did well and less if they didn't as well but 
the risk was all on me. Yeah. And uh, luckily, my I had played enough, and my reputation uh, preceded me that the most people knew who I was in the fiddle world. That they'd say, "Oh yeah, we know who Scott Woods is. We'll go and see his show." And uh, I was really, really lucky to have that start. And I had my mom on the piano still. Yeah. She was still touring, and Ivan Felker and Carl Watson uh, were kind of my two dads after my dad passed away. Yeah. Carl had played with my dad way back in when dad was twelve. Yeah. The very first band that he wow. played with, uh, the very first night that they played together, Carl was on the stage with my dad. Jeez. So, and he was still, uh, he hadn't played with us, you know, exclusively all the way through, of course, but uh, still playing with us a lot. Yeah. And uh, so we had Carl on bass and Ivan on guitar and Ivan sang, and my brother was playing drums, yeah. Bruce. So uh, it was a really easy show to take on the road because we all were like family. Yeah. So we have the Airstream trailers, so we'd put the gear in the back of my pickup and put the Airstream behind, and we'd go out, and if we needed to, we could stay overnight, and if not, we could just drive out in the truck and back. And uh, it, it was a really good start. Yeah. And then uh, 2006, we, I said, we're well, going to make or break this, so we took the tour and we went across the country to the west, and then in the summertime, we went to the east, came back and it kind of just has blossomed from there i think there was maybe 85 shows i did that year and the next year was like 120 and the next year was 160 and uh, i got to the point that it was like up in the 160 70 range and i realized that was a little too many so we try and keep it down to between 75 and 125 somewhere in the, around 100 usually yeah that makes sense so that must have been a big job getting those shows and um, contacting those people and or organizing the tours. And, yes. um, you know, people don't realize, you know, they just think you show up and, and play <laughs> and leave and that's it. But, um, and even then, um, you know, you're relying on, you know, the internet to some degree, but I'm sure it still was a lot of picking up the phone and, yep. and uh, um, going at it that way. Absolutely. I was on the phone a lot. And usually when I did call, I was successful uh, because I could talk to the people and, you know, my sales background in real estate certainly helped. And yeah. I wasn't afraid to pick up the phone. I, I learned that early on, you know, trying to get listings or trying to find uh, somebody, a house to to buy or whatever. It was really no different. And I and I had a really good product to to sell them because it was an easy fundraising effort for the church and all the churches were struggling for the most part they, they all need a roof or a furnace or choir gowns or or they're going on a mission or they want to donate it to the food bank or like there was always a need for more funds for the community and so it was a, an easy sell for a lot of the time and, but it was a lot a lot of work yeah and it was just it became uh <laughs> I always say that's where my, my playing started to slide because I became more, well, my friend used to say show business, if you look at it, show has four letters and business has eight letters. So uh, if you spend your efforts in those proportions, you're about a third of the time is actually building the show and practicing and performing. Yeah. And then, then the other two thirds of your time is spent booking and, you know, collecting the money and paying the band and doing the booking, uh, bookkeeping and all of the other business related items. And unfortunately that's where most of my life has been ever since because <laughs> I'm basically being like a promoter and an agent 
and a manager and a band leader. And I do all of our sound and lighting and any uh, pretty Mickey Mouse uh, technical stuff compared to the big shows. But it's something that we can pack up into the bus, take with us and set up and tear down every day and still show pretty good, you know. Yeah. But uh, it all has to be figured out. And uh, so it's, it's, I'm spent most of my time doing that. And then just a little bit about playing and recording and performing. Yeah, it changes. But on the other hand, if you didn't do that, um, you're back to the same choices again. Yeah. Sort of, you know, playing till two in the morning. And, exactly. Uh, those things that you didn't like to do. Um, so it must have been, like I mentioned, putting those tours together. When you started routing and decided to go, okay, now we're going to go across Canada. Um, how did you decide where you're going to go and who you're going to call? And and is obviously you weren't going to this performing arts center or um, this place that already has a ticket situation set up, mm-hmm. and you book it and it goes on sale. And um, primarily, you're you're booking churches most of the, most of the way is that correct or in different it was everything. everything a lot of the time the churches liked it because um they had the venue already yeah so they really gravitated towards our show um a lot of our shows originally i tried to get into the the smaller theaters mm-hmm. like the 200 to 400 seat venues uh, that's my preference always, but uh, you know, sometimes a lot of the communities don't have that. Yeah, a lot of the times the church is, is that's the biggest venue in the in the community. Sometimes it's at a legion hall or a community hall or something like that. So it would vary depending on the group and what was available in the community. And we'd play uh, typically the smaller towns outside. We don't usually play Calgary yeah. with our show, but we'll play Airdrie or High River. Uh, you know, on either side. And we do play Edmonton, but we quite often might play like Spruce Grove or Stony or yeah. Morinville or one of the places just outside of the city. Same with Saskatoon. We play Humboldt. Yeah. We'll play Melfort or Prince Albert, but not Saskatoon. Yeah. Um, so it, it was different. And so I, I basically, I went through everybody that I knew that uh, one of the things that we had done when I was with Barb is we, we started a mailing list, a fan club. Oh, yeah. And I managed that. It was my I, my baby. So I, I had little forms and we'd tell everybody if you like fiddle music and you want to see our shows. So I had, and I, being on the road with Barb for so many years, um, we had played a lot of those towns before. I did have contacts, people that I had met and, and knew. And you know what it's like when you're on the road, there's people that treat you like family. Yeah. We have a lady in Red Deer um, and she brings us two pies to the show every year in Red Deer, has for 15 years. Wow. And uh, so, and she's invited the whole band to her house for dinner and like, it's just like your family. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really know her, but yeah. she is just an, I mean, I do know her, but yeah. um, that, that's how I know her. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, the pie lady. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And we have a cookie lady in Alexandria. We have a bun lady in Richmond, Quebec. And I mean, it yeah. just goes on, right? <laughs> So I was able to call on some of those people and say, "Hey, who do you know? Do you do you, you go to church? Do you have a church? Do you do you know anybody that has an idea?" Uh, Bud and Ann Watson in Spruce Grove said, "Yeah, our church would be perfect for that." Yeah, and they helped me. So it was a very I was very very fortunate to have that support 
uh, from the fiddle community and our fans. And that's how I kind of got going. And then sometimes it didn't work out with that particular group, but because we were there, somebody else came. And then I was able to make another contact or somebody, a lot of the time people, after the first time, uh, most of the time people would contact me and say, saw your show, loved it. Would you come and play at our town, which is 50 miles the other side? Yeah. And then, so I might not have that one, but I might have another show. And so it's, it was always more of a struggle to fit everybody in and not be too close to another town. Yeah. Geographically or time-wise to, uh, to make sure that everybody was going to be successful. And then as we continued, the, the, the show kind of grew to the point that we offered them lots of advice on how to market the show and how to get free publicity as much as possible and coming events. And uh, we designed the posters. Originally, we designed them and then they had to copy them, but then we just copied them because sometimes they just make a photocopy in the machine at the office and it was black and white and crooked and yeah you know the tickets weren't very nice looking so we said okay well we'll make the tickets for you too so we we kind of are like a ticket master and a a print shop and everything all in one it's a really easy show for and then again that's why the churches love it because it's it's basically out of the box you just when they get the package everything you need to run the show and make it successful is there. And, and the ones that are very successful always comment about how great the package is. Oh, yeah. And the ones that don't do as well, um, I say, uh, you know, did you, did you read the package? Uh, well, no, actually, uh, uh, no, we didn't. Uh, we, we've done shows before and I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's why it didn't work. Yeah. The information's there if you, you use it. Yeah, exactly. So, you were traveling with Airstreams and that, and I know eventually you decided to get a bus. Where was the decision around that? <laughs> well, I'd always wanted a bus. Uh, you know, it's always the dream. Like they say, the uh, happiest day of, of a musician is the day he gets his bus. And I guess the other side of that story is the, ha- the second happiest day is the day he sells his bus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was 2007. We were on the road with our Christmas tour. Uh, we we had been in Florida. We still have Airstream trailers. I'm still very much involved with the Airstream club. Yeah. My Airstream right now is sitting in Florida, and it's waiting for us to come back down there in a couple of weeks to uh, the sunshine. We have some shows coming up down there. Good. And uh, so I left the trailer there. My sister's going to use it after our tour is done, and because they have an Airstream as well, they're going to take my trailer and go off for a couple of weeks and pull my trailer home with my truck, and uh, I'll I'll have the bus there. But. Uh, on the way home from Florida once in 07, I stopped in in Nashville. I'd been looking at buses for a while. And I made the mistake of looking at this one particular bus, the one that I ended up buying. Yeah. And it was really expensive. It was a beautiful coach. I looked at two, actually. One was Cher's old bus. It was a 99 uh, H3 Prevo. And basically the same utility, but very glitzy. Yeah. High gloss cabinets and fancy design in the carpet and fancy paint job on the outside. And my mom was with me and she, she looked at it and she's, well, it's a little over the top. Like, it's like you're really showing off. Yeah. And then we looked at the one that I ended up buying and uh, she said, now this, this is nice because it's just kind of silver. It's got a little thing on the side. The interior is just kind of plain. I mean, it's, it's leather couches and big TV and everything, but it's, it's just more utilitarian. It's more... Yeah. 
focus, like home. Yeah, it's more grassroots for what we're doing. You know, we have travel with a dog and we're in and out of the place with mud and snow and, you know, five or six piece band and people are on and off the bus all the time and gear and everything else. So it's a working bus. It's not a motor home for us. Yeah. So I, I, I couldn't afford it at the time. That was in the spring of 07. At Christmas time in 07, uh, I got a call from the place in Nashville and they had leased that bus out over the summer and it was back on the lot and they knew that I had looked at it and so they had reduced the price and the dollar had also come, it was like, I don't know, 20% on the, something similar to what it is now and it had come to almost par. Yeah. So that reduced the price significantly. It was about $100,000 difference from what it would have been had I bought it in the spring to what it was when I did make the deal. So we had a couple of days off on a Christmas tour. So I flew down to Nashville and I went to another bus place and I looked at a couple there and then went to this one and looked at this bus again. And I made them an offer and they accepted. (laughs) I'm like, oh no, now what have I done? (laughs) So I said, okay, well, I'll go home and I'll get the the money transferred and he, he transferred it to them or wired it to them. And then at the uh, end of our Christmas tour, I flew down. Actually, I guess I drove down with my brother-in-law in the truck. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd, they already paid for the bus. It was just a matter of picking it up. And uh, then we drove it home. And I remember I had, I had test driven it, but, you know, I had 10 or 20 miles under my belt and that was it. Yeah. And I get in behind the wheel and I'm like, okay, now I'm going home driving a bus. And I'd always driven trucks and pulled trailers and been driving tractors and everything since I was a kid. So I wasn't afraid to drive it, but it was a big machine. It's 50,000 pounds and 45 feet long and almost 13 feet tall. And so my, my brother-in-law, there's CB in my truck and there's CB in the bus, of course. So he's behind me and we're heading up uh, 65 out of Nashville. And he said, for the first 50 miles, the right side of the bus was over the white line. Like I didn't realize how wide it was on that side. It's 102 inches wide, eight and a half feet. And so he said after about 50 miles, then it was running about on the white line for about another 40 or 50 miles. (laughs) And they said, after that, you got it centered into the lane and you had a foot or two on either side, depending on how wide the lane was and it was good to go. So it took about a hundred miles to kind of get used to how wide it was. But uh, yeah, I, I bit the bullet and I said, you know, if we're going to travel, this is the... And I looked at everything. I looked at motorhomes. I looked at configuring my Airstream trailer to accommodate the band better. And I think what the biggest challenge for me was having that darn pickup truck and putting the gear in the back. So you're jumping up to the tailgate of a three-quarter ton uh, diesel pickup and yeah. slugging the gear in. So you got to set it up and then jump up and then pull it forward and then stack it and then jump down and set something else up and then jump up and then push it forward and stack it again. And it was just really hard on the back. And I did that several times and it was so hot sometimes in the summertime in the back of that darn truck yeah. that you're sweating before you even get the gear unloaded to set up, you know, it was just not very nice. So now we roll the gear up and the bus is, you know, a foot off the ground. We just tip the gear up and push it right in. And it's uh, so much easier. It's, it's great in most respects. The downfall, of course, with the bus is A, the cost yeah. to, to maintain and keep it running. And sometimes it's just so big, it's awkward to get in some places with trees or they say, just park over there on the grass and it's too heavy, you can't, it'll sink. Yeah. 
it's so it's it's a bit of a challenge at times as well. I'm always nervous if I'm going into a place that I'm not familiar with. Sometimes they have a back alley and they say drive the bus down the back alley and then unload it, but then you can't get out, so you have to back all the way out. Oh yeah. Or and that's why I've resisted pulling a trailer behind the bus. It'd be easier with the gear than yeah. in the bays underneath, but anyway. Yeah, it's harder some getting in and out and I mean that's the thing with with the bus too. It's has its a lot of great moments, but if you just want to whip down and you know a few blocks and oh yeah go somewhere it's a it's, we're, it's a big deal we're all in the bus so mm-hmm. we we basically park at the venue and at night we park at a walmart or a truck stop or some empty parking lot somewhere yeah and if there's some place close by that they can walk to then the band can go and walk and so if it's a Walmart, it's great because we, we do a lot of shopping, groceries, and we all eat on the bus typically. Yeah. And uh, so they eat pretty healthy. Yeah. So they eat a lot of salads and, you know, that kind of stuff. They eat, Whatever they do, cooking your own is still, even if you cook a hamburger, but you can buy the ground beef and make your own burgers and cook them on a George Foreman or something. It's still much healthier than going to the McDonald's or Burger King every day. Yeah. Um, so that that part's handy, but sometimes you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, a little country church out in 10 miles out of town, uh, there's nothing. So you got to be able to have enough food to do you for a day or two, just in case. Yeah. And getting water is always another issue to yeah, fill yeah. up the water tanks because we sleep right on the bus. We shower on the bus. And uh, so it's, it's, it's always lots of challenges. To, and I don't know how many times I've changed the oil in the generator at midnight on the pouring rain in a Walmart parking lot somewhere, but it needed to be done. And yeah. You know, you're driving until two o'clock in the morning and you sleep for a few hours and at six, you're back behind the wheel again and driving again and, you know, but it is, it's life on the road. You get used to it and at least you're sleeping in your own bed. Yeah. The dirt that's in the bed is your own. Yeah. And my dog travels with us. So, uh, it's, it's like having your home with you all the time. So you, you go out to the bus and I always say at the beginning of the tour, you look at that bus sitting there and it's pouring rain. You say, Oh, that seems so nice. It's warm and cozy in there. It's going to feel so great to come into the bus. And after you've been on the road for three months with the same four or five guys, uh, you look at the bus sitting, you say, Oh my God, I never want to go in that thing again. Get it away. Go, go. Let me spin around in the room without touching anything. If I put my arms out. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it is really the best way to travel though. Yeah, and the amount of traveling you do, it you know, it makes perfect sense, and and you know, it looks good when you pull up. And, um, it's I, a good-looking bus, and um, you know, there's that whole aspect to it as well. It's it's a form of professionalism when you you show up. Yeah, the gig. I, I'm, Terry Sumption was a good friend, and and Terry always would watch that bus that he had, mm-hmm. you know, and he would uh, say, "Well, boys." We're going to stop at the truck stop and we're going to go into the Blue Beacon and get our bus washed and we're going to shine her up and get your rags out and we're going to go through and dry it off and pull up to the venue and it looks nice. And, and I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be a new bus. It's just it's that you take pride in what you're doing. And for me, it's about that whole whole perspective for the audience so that when they walk up, they see everything is positive. The yeah. bus is clean and it's parked nicely. It's even along the curb and they walk in and the lights are on and there's nice programs sitting there for them. There's posters. They know where they come. Everybody is there ready, dressed. It's it's part of that whole presentation so that the the whole positive atmosphere is projected throughout their whole experience coming to the show. Yeah, they've got 
a perception already that it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, and before it even starts. So yeah, that, that makes, makes perfect sense. So if you were to do it again now, say if you're, uh, had a choice to buy a bus again now, <laughs> would you bite the bullet on that one? Or you, would you look at something else? You know, I've, uh, I've toyed with the idea of selling the bus and, uh, the, the, the one thing about the bus is that it ties me to having to play because yeah. it's expensive. I can't keep it sitting in the driveway, not running. And, and it's my own personal bus. So I, I don't lease it out. I don't, nobody else uses it. So if I'm not on the road, it's sitting there. And, and if I go on a holiday, I take the Airstream yeah. and the bus still sits there. So it's not like I can use it that way. Um, and I have toyed with the idea of selling it. And then as soon as I get close to actually selling it, I've had it on the market a few times just to see. Yeah. Then I'm like, okay, so what, what would I get? So I always end up looking at other buses. Oh yeah. And then I'm like, well, that's dumb. I've already got a bus. I rebuilt the motor last year. So, uh, you know, the bus is, it's a 2000 and it's got 930,000 kilometers on it. But I'll tell you, she's a great running bus. Yeah. And, uh, so it, it needs constant maintenance. It's in the shop right now, getting service, ready to go to Florida. Yeah. And uh, there's always something, you, you pretty much have to be a mechanic if you have any, any kind of a rig, an RV of any kind, yeah. um, because there's always something you have to fix. But I think at the end of the day, if you're going to be on the road, it, it really is the best way to, I, I would do it again for sure. Yeah. And even yeah, if I sold it, I'd probably buy another one. Yeah. Because there's not really many good alternatives, you know, besides that. Now you can get into... Um, a sprinter. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen a few people do that and put some bunks in there and pull yep. a trailer. Um, that would be my next option probably yeah. if I was, if I wasn't on the road and, and I did the math um, a couple of years ago. And for me, the, the magic number is 60 shows a year. Mm-hmm. If I do less than 60 shows, I could do it um, probably cheaper just with the cargo trailer in the back of my truck and hotels. Um, not including food and the comfort and all of that stuff, yeah. just from the pure financial point of view. But once you get over 60 shows, then the bus starts to become more economical because if you have a day off in the middle of Saskatchewan, you just park the bus. Yeah, You might run the generator, but that costs you like 20 bucks in the day for diesel fuel. Um, but that's it. But if you have a day off in Saskatchewan and you are in a hotel, now you've got three hotel rooms that are a hundred or 120 bucks a night. Yeah. Plus you got to eat and you might get your breakfast for free, but you got to eat lunch and you got to eat your supper and the band expect to get that covered one way or the other, either in pay or a per diem or something. Yeah. Um, so it, it gets really expensive. And then, then there's the whole issue of everybody has to get up in the morning at the same time and everybody has to have a shower before you leave the hotel. And then you have to stop and eat at the same place. And not everybody likes to eat the same stuff or at the same time. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the bus gives you that freedom. Yeah. If they want to stay up till three o'clock in the morning, I don't care. And yeah. if they want to sleep till noon, I don't care. As long as they're up in time to unload and set up, that's good. Mm-hmm. So everybody's got kind of their normal routine still. And there's TVs in the bunks and there's TV in the front and, you know, they can eat or sleep or whatever they want to do. A lot of them do other work. Uh, lots of them do courses online while yeah. they're on the road with me. And uh, the young guy we got, Leo, he's uh, 14. 
uh, he's homeschooled, so yeah. he's still uh, taking courses, working on his homework all the time while we're going down the road, sitting at the table, yeah. doing his stuff. So it's it's a really good way. You couldn't do that in the back of a pickup truck. You know, five no. guys in a pickup truck and squished in the middle, and you, you can't have that. You'd basically be sitting there falling asleep. Yeah. So how many years now have you been doing, I guess, since you started all six? So um, we're at uh, 12, 13 years. Yeah. And, uh, uh, doing the touring with the Scott Woods uh, show. Uh, what do you see now for the next you look ahead five, six, ten years ahead. <laughs> well, I won't lie. I'm I'm tired. I I'm not burnt out, but I'm I'm tired. I I work hard, and our crowd is typically a more senior crowd, and yeah. it's tougher to get them out because they're they're getting on in age, and and getting the younger seniors who are very mobile still, uh, they don't always know who I am. And they're not even necessarily fiddle or country music fans. So it's, it's a tougher sell sometimes to keep the old time fiddle music that I play. And, I, and I'm not like a lot of the younger fiddlers who are really more into the Celtic scene where they're attracting young, you know, college age, uh, basically fiddle tunes with rock and roll band behind them yeah. uh, atmosphere. I, I, I don't do that. I'm doing the old school, basically like Don Messer. Uh, and, and it is tough. And so I, I toy with the idea of slowing down, in which case I might sell the bus and, and just go out and do a short run once a year. Oh, yeah. uh, or, I, I mean, I guess ideally it would be to set up in a, a place like Branson, Missouri or someplace and, and then not have that travel expense and the tearing out down and setting up every day um, and still be able to play. But, uh, you know, those gigs are hard to find and you kind of really kind of know somebody to get in. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I, at this point, I haven't uh, given up. I've got still lots of energy to, to keep going. I've still got some ideas. And uh, this year, we've got an exciting show starting uh, fiddling around. It's called Every year we have a new show. And that's kind of what has kept us going because the crowd know that what they saw last year won't be the same as what they're going to see this year. So I try and have different people on the stage with me. That helps. Yeah. Uh, and this year we've got Naomi Bristol joining us. Correct. 21 years old, the Canada's yodeling cowgirl, of course, mm -hmm. very well known. She's got a, quite a following of her own on RFD TV. She's been recorded with Vince Gill and uh, Bill Anderson and uh, all these guys. Like she's a, just a real pro already at her young age. So she'll be doing our whole tour with us in the spring and at Christmas time and we're really excited to have Naomi joining us and we've got Leo Stock who is our step dancer and he's also going to be playing drums this year oh, good. he sings and he plays his fiddle and he's a bit of a card does some comedy stuff a bit of shtick on the stage yeah. uh, and of course my sister Kendra and I on fiddle and Kendra plays piano and accordion and whatever else she needs to do she'll cover the bass with the piano and then Steve Patico on guitar. So we've got lots of variety between uh, Steve's guitar picking and Naomi's singing uh, and Leo's step dancing. And of course my trick fiddling, um, Kendra does a mini pearl comedy thing. So we, we have a real variety show that we still have a completely different show this year than last year. We're really looking forward to that. And then our Christmas show, of course, uh, coming up uh, November, and December, we're taking that show west again. Yeah. It's uh, just the final few dates to confirm on our 
2019 tour. I've been working at that. So it's, it's a vi- very busy year shaping up to be. We're heading to Florida uh, shortly to do our, our it's actually our uh, fiddling up a storm show that we did last year yeah. is the show we're doing in Florida. So it's, uh, it's kind of already built and ready to go. So we're still, still busy. busy. Yeah. Doesn't sound like you're slowing down. No, not really. No, I, I threatened <laughs> to. I, I think I'm, I'm still just as busy. I'm just slower at doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is tiring. Um, and I think you, you can easily get to the point where you, you feel like, yeah, I need a, I need a break because there's, you know, a ton of work behind the scenes that mm-hmm. nobody ever sees. Um, and the stress of everything, too. Um, uh, it can be very stressful knowing you know next time out you know i tour a lot of shows and you may have a great tour but you don't know what the next tour is going to be exactly Uh, doesn't mean it's going to be gangbusters every time um and that's just the world of 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 touring um and and doing that no matter where you are so um you just gotta like you said you keep changing the show and you keep doing whatever you can to to get the people out and and uh, uh but yeah it is it is stressful and um it's a lot of work and um even when the shows are successful uh and you look out and the crowd is good it doesn't mean that you're necessarily paying the bills like the expenses are a big issue and like last year as an example the the rebuild on the bus it's a 60 series detroit engine and it's uh one of the easier ones to rebuild than the cat or the cummins and uh it was still by the time there was a few extra things here and there needed a 24 volt alternator and a few things that weren't necessarily part of the rebuild yeah but still the bill at the end of the day was like almost forty eight thousand dollars yeah like that's a lot of fiddle playing before you even get back to where i started and you know going down the road it's the same bus it's the same like everything i'm not i'm not any i don't have a new bus i don't have a prettier bus i don't have a fancier bus um the utility is I'm still going down the road. There was a motor and it was running and I went down the road and now I'm going down the road and there's a motor and it's running. And, you know, it, it, this expense is huge. Yeah. And uh, even regular yearly maintenance on the bus is between ten and fifteen or $18,000. Just, just normal oil changes and brakes and, and stuff that needs to be fixed and replaced. So, um you know, it's it's the expenses that I really have to watch, and that's one of the big problems w- with a big show. I, I mean, there's only five or six of us on the stage usually, but still, um, you know, the PA and the lights and the gear and the backdrop, and it, it, there's always, you know what it's like, there's always a cord that's broken, you got to buy another one. Yeah. And somebody drops a stand and the mic stand breaks the tip off and you have to go and buy another one or it's bent, it won't go down. You've, so duct tape fixes everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. Your buddy Red Green will tell you that. But oh, yeah. uh, So we, we're always fixing something and, and it all has to be replaced. And, and you try hard to be careful with the stuff, but it's just wear and tear. You can't help it. It's just a cost of doing business. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just the way that touring is and and you're the one that has to pay for it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would love to get a gig like my guys have got, mm-hmm. like somebody like me, uh, running the show and providing the bus and all of the, the gigs. And I just have to show up and set up the gear and play my little, and I mean, they work hard. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm really lucky. I had, uh, Bill Carruthers and Pete Sisk with me last year and they worked hard yeah. setting the gear up every day. And we play pretty much every day when we're on the road. I never schedule a day off. And as I'm laying out the tour, yeah, 
there's always that one or two places that say we want to show. And then when push comes to shove, they say, oh, what not on that day. Our venue's not available. Or we have something else that day. We can't do the show. So I end up with nothing just because the way it is. And so I I only have a day off if that happens or if I have a scheduled drive day. Um, but otherwise we're working every single day and even they can sleep in, in their, in their bunks. It's, it, it's tough on them as well. And, yeah. uh, but at least that's the end of their, they, their worry. They don't have to s- sit and count bums in the seats and say, are we making money today or not? I don't know. Um, th- th- they're making money anyways. They're getting paid. They know they're going to get paid regardless. And yeah, and it's hard to do. I mean, it's hard to separate when you're doing a show too, because you can, you, you still have to go out after, you know, driving there and setting up and getting everything ready. <laughs> and then you have to be the, the front of the show. And then you have to make sure you're not looking out thinking about, you know, because as the front, you're thinking about all these extra things that, <laughs> that you know, maybe the people behind you don't have to think about. Right. And then you have to make sure you keep, that's my biggest thing. If, if you know, I'm doing a show and I'm part of the lead, uh, you know, I know everything that's going on. So, Exactly. I can hear the PA. I can see the, what's happening with the lighting. I can see with this. And if it's not working the way I'd want it to be going, then that affects what I'm going to do as the entertainer. Um, so, yeah, it, and you, or you try not to let it happen. But it's when you're super aware of everything and you've got all these other responsibilities, it's hard to kind of just shut things Anybody off. Anybody that it comes knows to you can see it on your face for sure. Yeah. And you try and still keep smiling, but you're really gritting your teeth saying, why are those lights not right? I said how I want those lights and now they're not right. Yeah. I know exactly what that's like. And and you're right. It's so tough to still put your smile on and go out and tell your jokes and play the show and, and, and remember it, how you're supposed to start the tune and the tempo and the feel and, and all of that stuff has to be, for me, it becomes second nature. Like it's very rare that I, and I guess I, I go back to what we started talking about. I thank my parents for that classical background, yeah. that technique because my fingers uh, inherently just play the tune. Once the tune starts, it just comes from my heart or, or my head or whatever through my fingers and it happens. But meanwhile, I'm thinking, okay, after this tune, I tell this joke and then this tune, but wait, we changed the key of that one, so I have to do that. And wait, why is that guy, st- why is he leaning against the light switch? He's not gonna turn the lights on, is he? Why is he doing that? And I mean, you're looking at all of this stuff. But you're still doing your... But yet your fingers are still working. You're still playing the tune and it's still good. Like it's... Like it's not like you're not in the moment. You're... It's just an instinctive... It's very natural um, way of playing that way. Yeah. I think I've said before, I don't know how many times I've been on stage and you played a song and maybe I played the solo and something and you're three quarters way through the song and you just come back to reality from whatever you were doing. Um... And you just think to yourself, what what did I just play? I don't remember anything that just happened. And obviously yes. no one's looking at me strange or there's nothing no. going on. So it must have been okay. Yeah. But it becomes so automatic that you're able to drift off. And yes. It's not some in fantasy land. I'm usually <laughs> thinking something important that's going on. Or I think, you know, like you said, you got to think about what's going to happen in the next song or 
it's you know you look over and something's not working right so i wonder why that's happening over there and <laughs> and then all of a sudden you've just played a solo <laughs> yes no idea you just did it for years i did a lot of uh, house fiddle gigs at the competitions for square dancing and step dancing a lot of step dancing yeah and of course it's all uh, you know it's uh, 32 bars of a clog 48 bars of a jig and then 96 bars of a reel typically for a competition set yeah and so sometimes when you play clog jig and reel, clog jig and reel, clog jig and reel, over and over and over again, you get tired. And then at some point, so some of these classes, there's 30 or 40 contestants in a row. Wow. You might have to play for almost all of them. It's very, sometimes it's rare that somebody else would come up and bring their own fiddler. So sometimes I remember looking at my mom, you know, you play A, A, B, B, A, A of the jig and you're on the A part of the jig, ready to go into the reel. But you're thinking to yourself, is this the first day or is this the second day? Is it time to switch to the reel or not? And you're playing, so you can't say what you're actually thinking. But I would look over at my mom with this kind of panic look on my face. And she knew what I was thinking. And I would say, yes or no? And she, if she said yes, then okay, it must be the second A, we're going into the reel. And, and if she said no, then okay, it's the first day, we have to do it again. We have to repeat it. And then we go into the... And I think in all those years it only happened maybe two or three times that I guessed and I was wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I went into the reel and it was too soon or I didn't go into the reel and I should have. And so then I had to stop and it was my fault. So the dancer got to re-dance right. and, but that was so rare and I felt awful. <laughs> like in, I don't right, know. It's so easy to do though. 25 years yeah. of playing for step dancers that happened two or three times. It's not that bad, but at the same time, it's their competition and they're relying on me. But I just got tired and I just physically, I just, my, mentally, I was drained. And uh, so it, it's kind of that situation where you think, you know, what am I doing? <laughs> it was funny because uh, every once in a while, it depends on the fiddle tune I'm doing in, in our family show, I'll be, we lock all of our lighting and visuals and everything to the computer. So, and it sits by, the drummer so i'll be you know playing whatever fiddle tune and playing away playing away playing away and i'll same thing i'll be like gosh how many times i'm supposed to be playing this thing because i got to end it at the right time to go <laughs> with everything else yeah and i just look over everyone else and they're all relying on me to take them in yeah to the ending too because uh, you just set it up and we just finish up so i've gotten really good at just kind of leaning back and taking a look at the screen <laughs> and I know my program so well and I can and I can read waveforms from like a mile away <laughs> and I can see all the you know I'll see all the markers that I've got set up for where the end of the song is supposed to be and I'll just look back and say nope I gotta play one more time yeah there you go <laughs> and it's just get it done it's just like but sometimes I just get you just when you get in a situation like that you have to just kind of you just can't end whenever you want you have to uh and that's what happens when you see a lot of big shows now you know you see big touring shows um they you know if you want to take another solo you can't yeah i mean all the lighting everything you're watching is all locked into a computer yes and if you know if you miss coming in after the intro of the song the band doesn't vamp and wait for you to come in no they just keep playing and you got to catch up. Yep. They've already started the progression of the chords and you just have to miss a verse and then come in or jump in, in the middle, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a great chat. We learned a lot and uh, <laughs> I know you're, uh, 
you've got a great tour this year. When do you, so you're heading down to Florida in March? Yes. And then uh, when does the uh, new tour start? The new tour is fiddling around, and it starts on the 26th of April. So we'll go into rehearsals um, the few days before that. We always do a dress rehearsal before our tour starts as well. Yeah. Uh, usually at one of the no- local nursing homes. We set up the whole show and everything, projection and lights, and they get a real sense of what we're we're doing and, it, and it's more for us it's much more than we need to to play in the nursing home but i explained to them this is as much for us as it is for them so yeah. that we make sure that the gear actually works the way it's supposed to and that everybody knows what gear is what and some of it doesn't some of the gear doesn't come out until we actually unload the cases yeah. you know like the mic stands i don't realize somebody broke one last time it was out and so we have to find that out at dress rehearsal so uh things like that and uh, so we start on the 26th of April and we play basically every night until there might be a handful of dates, three or four or five dates uh, that are either drive days or days off yeah. um, until the 15th, I think, of June. We're back in Ontario. So we started in Ontario, um, swing into Quebec quickly and then back and then head out to Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, B.C., not quite to the coast. I think we're going to be as far west as Abbotsford. Yeah. And then circle back. And so that takes us to the 15th of June. We're back in Ontario by then. And then our Christmas tour does basically the same routine. Yeah. I think there's 47 or 8 shows in the first run. And then at Christmas time, about 41 or so shows, I think, in five provinces in 42 days or something. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it's uh, it's a busy run, and you know we were talking about the stuff that people don't see. They don't see the six or eight hours drive you did in the morning, yeah, and then the two hours of setting up, and then the sound check and EQing the room and adjusting the lights, focusing the lights, and adjusting the projection. Uh, we have GoPro cameras on the stage, so they all have to be adjusted, and then everybody has to get in and out of the shower, and then we all have to eat. And then we all get changed. And some days we have to stop and do some laundry because our show clothes need to be laundered when we're on the road for that long, of course. Yep. Uh, and then we are back in at 6 o'clock typically for a 7 o'clock show. And we meet the audience as they're coming in. And I usually sneak off backstage and I'm, I'm, I'm going back to my roots and I'm playing all that shradiac and scales and oh, yeah. exercises to warm up. Not only my physical part, my, my left hand, especially the, the violin, but also it's kind of a, a mental, I just kind of like a, a almost meditation. Yeah. I think to myself, where am, I, where am I at? And what is going to happen today? What's different? Well, who am I see in the audience just in case so that I'm kind of prepared to say something if I do see somebody? And, you know, all of the things that, that need to happen so that I'm ready to, to be that front man after yeah. all of those things. And then we do our show and then we go out and we sign autographs and uh, sell CDs and meet the folks and shake hands and then we have to go change and then pack all that gear up at the end load the bus hopefully there's not stairs but sometimes we have to go up and down stairs yeah you know and then then sometimes we drive another two three hours uh sometimes we were able to park you know right there if it's a only a couple hours to the next venue we usually park somewhere close to that one yeah and then drive in the morning but it's a long day yeah, and yeah. you do that day after day and uh, you know a week is not so bad two weeks Anybody can handle it. Three weeks is pushing it. Yeah. But you start talking eight, nine, 10, 12 weeks. 
every day, it's it's, it's tiring. Grind. Yeah. If you ever get sick, then you're beat. Yeah. Like if, especially me, because uh, I don't get a chance to rest. Yeah. And I do all the driving. So it's, uh, you, you, even you're sitting there, you're not doing much, you're just driving. Oh, tiring. It's, yeah, it's, it's very tiring. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's even the day off travel day is a work day. For me, it is, yeah. 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 yeah and even the, the band, they can't go and do something. They can't go and do laundry or go and shop or go out and explore. And people often say, oh, did you see the museum? Did you get a chance to go and check out the the nice trail and the, and the mountains? And I'm like, mm, no, no, sorry, don't have time. <laughs> yeah, We saw it on the highway. It looked good. Yeah. At 60 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, I hear it. Well, thanks for dropping in. Um, good luck on the tour. Thank you. And uh, hope we get a chance to uh, see one of the new shows uh, if we're close enough and yeah, I'm able to get there. And uh, good luck, and we should do this again. What's the best way for people to uh, reach out and find you via the interwebs? Well, the scottwoods.ca is our website, and it has our schedule, and it has a little uh, sample of, uh, uh, we've got about 20, I think 24th album we're working on right now. Wow. Uh, it'll be out before uh, our tour starts in April. Yeah. And so there's a little sample of, of at least one part tune of each of the albums. And uh, of course, we're on Facebook as well, Scott Woods and uh, Scott Woods Band, um, and it, we're we're trying to get caught up with some of that social media stuff. I'm not very uh, adept at all of the the ways of the the new world of marketing, but uh, I've got uh, Janet McGlynn helping me in London, and she does a great job with not only my graphics and my website and all of that stuff, but she's uh, really good at all of that. So yeah. she's, she's helping us. But scottwoods.ca will help tell you all the information, where we're playing, how to get tickets. Uh, we have a, a toll-free number, one eight five five scott woods that you can call and get information on where we're playing and how to get tickets. And you can actually buy your tickets with a credit card, and they'll be held at the door. It's my sister, Kendra, that you'll talk to probably, and uh, she can set you straight about where we're going to be and, and how to get there and all of that stuff. Perfect. Well, good luck, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.